Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now, here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. In honor of the United Nations International Day for Tolerance today, we'll be discussing religious tolerance initiatives in the Middle East and North Africa region over the past several years. Especially after September 11th, governments in the Middle East have increasingly espoused the doctrine of religious tolerance. The United States has also encouraged greater tolerance abroad as an antidote to uh, extremism and violent extremism in particular. Religious tolerance is one key component of tolerance overall, and many countries in the region showcase their places of worship, such as churches, synagogues, and mosques, as evidence of tolerance. And the recent Abraham Accords have also reignited the conversation on religious tolerance. But are there potential pitfalls of promoting religious tolerance rather than freedom of religion or belief as defined in the international human rights standards? And what's the difference between the two? And how can the United States government promote religious tolerance in a way that most effectively advances our national interests in promoting religious freedom? Now, to get to some of these questions, we have with us today USERF Supervisory Policy Analyst, Scott Wiener, who has been doing some research into this topic. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much, Dwight. Good to see you again. Now, to start off, if you could, could you explain uh, to our audience how religious tolerance as a a concept is defined and what are some of the key differences with the international human rights standard of freedom of religion or belief? So religious tolerance is the concept that faith communities should mutually afford their respective members freedom of religion or belief. And it lays the ground for religious freedom by trying to preempt the need for government intervention. So that's a little bit different than freedom of religion or belief, which is a freedom that governments are required to uphold under international law. That's an important distinction because religious tolerance is less explicitly afforded and less well-defined in international legal instruments like the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights than freedom of religion or belief, which is expressly spelled out in Article 18. Now, religious tolerance is helpful in principle, and there's a utility for the U.S. government to be promoting it, but it also raises some important challenges. For example, does tolerance shift the burden for providing religious freedom away from governments and onto citizens? Does it allow a government to restrict freedom of religion or belief on the grounds that a group is intolerant? These are really important questions that we think U.S. foreign policy needs to account for. And so we wanted to record the podcast today to help inform that discussion as an independent U.S. government entity that deals with a lot of these issues on a daily basis. Now, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of activity since the events of the Arab Spring 10 years ago. Uh, but it would be it would be very helpful if you could explain some of the ways that 
governments really since then, really post 9-11, as, as I mentioned earlier, but, uh, but in the last 10 years, how governments in the region have tried to advance this concept of religious tolerance to give us some specifics might be a way to, to, to look at this a little deeper. Sure. So in the Middle East, there's almost this architecture around religious tolerance and promoting religious tolerance um, and a number of ways in which this happens. So firstly, governments and influential ruling family members have founded centers like the King Abdelaziz Center for National Dialogue in Saudi Arabia that promote religious tolerance or coexistence. And there are many other examples of this. And these entities are often state funded. They're run by government elites or members of the ruling family. And they're publications and events tend to focus on international religious tolerance and do so largely as a form of public diplomacy of showcasing the country and its achievements. Governments also hold international conferences to promote religious tolerance, for example, the Dissid Conference in Doha, Qatar. Uh, these conferences emphasize broad themes of tolerance. They may or may not engage on specifics, but they do speak to tolerance writ large. Governments also sign international declarations endorsing the principles of religious tolerance and coexistence. Some good examples of this are the 2016 Marrakesh Declaration and the 2017 Kingdom of Bahrain Declaration. And these are written documents that emphasize the need to promote tolerance of many different peoples, including religious communities. The common thread through all of these pieces is that while they're helpful and while promoting religious tolerance carries important weight, none of them actually require governments to make structural changes that enhance freedom of religion or belief within their countries. And I want to be really clear, that doesn't mean that these things are useless or irrelevant. It just means that there's still work to be done. And it's important to understand the broader context in which religious tolerance promotion can be effectively used to promote religious freedom as we define it under the international standards. You know, you mentioned a couple of big, uh, you know, efforts in, in uh, Morocco and, and Bahrain. I was actually at that 2016 uh, event kicking off the Marrakesh Declaration, a very uh, eclectic event, diverse uh, attendees from religious leaders to government officials. But, you know, there, there was an attempt to have some legs behind that initiative. And it's kind of, uh, which in effect was, you know, to protect religious, non-Muslim religious minorities in majority Muslim lands. This was hearkening back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and of course, how that has played out in civil society or even governments responding has not been either consistent, you know, or, uh, you know, methodical in, a, in an approach. It's, it's been a bit piecemeal. But, you know, one of the things you alluded to is that uh, over time, uh, in recent years, a number of the governments in the region started ramping up their rhetoric on religious tolerance, uh, you know, particularly after 9-11. But then again, I think, uh, after the uh, events of the Arab Spring and re re responding when the people were calling for more freedom and, 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 uh, and rights. Um, why the shift in your opinion and, and what kind of impact uh, is it having on truly f uh, uh, religious freedom uh, progress in the region? Sure. So a lot of the discourse on religious tolerance, that rhetoric really occurs after September 11th in response to the American ideological framing of this dichotomy between radical intolerant Islam on the one hand versus moderate tolerant Islam on the other. The United States framed the fight against Al-Qaeda as sort of a broader war of ideas 
And so Middle Eastern governments reflected this rhetoric as a way of signaling alignment with the United States against violent extremism. Now, it's important to remember that the U.S. has benefited immensely from this cooperation on countering violent extremist groups who justify their attacks on the basis of religion. And this isn't support that the United States should take for granted. It is extremely beneficial for U.S. foreign policies to have allies like this who value religious tolerance. At the same time, this framing of religious tolerance itself also has three effects that as second order outcomes are a bit challenging for the US when it comes to strategically promoting religious freedom. So number one, it allowed governments to go after religious dissidents on the basis of intolerance. So in Saudi Arabia, for example, the Sunni Sahwa movement, which first emerged in the 1960s, supported nonviolent strategies to create political reforms rooted in Islam. But the Saudi government cracked down on the group in the 1990s, and it continues to detain leaders of that movement. It's threatened many of them with capital punishment. A lot of those cases are ongoing. Second, the state co-opted religious institutions. So Egypt's government, for example, uses Al-Azhar University, the Office of the Mufti, and the Supreme Council of Islamic Affairs to shape religious rulings and advance state policies. As scholars like Anne Wainscott and Anel Sheline have pointed out, in many Middle Eastern states, religious scholars are added to the payroll of the state, and the state showcases certain often English-speaking clerics is representing true Islam, rather than leaving the religious discourse to Muslim communities themselves, which is kind of the way in which Article 18 understands religious freedom. And finally, the rhetoric of religious tolerance when it isn't supported by action is what Holger Albrecht and Oliver Schlumberger call an imitative institution. It's often window dressing that governments use to gloss over the ways in which they deny freedom of religion or belief. So Bahrain espouses international religious tolerance, but it continues to systematically discriminate against its Shia Muslim population. Qatar hosts international religious freedom conferences, but its seventh grade textbooks teach that treachery and treason are among the traits of the Jews. The UAE has an entire ministry of tolerance, but it's cracked down on political Islam. So the form of tolerance is great. It's a helpful step, but it has to come with function and structural changes as well in order for governments to truly uphold their obligations under international law. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, set of examples you provide there because a lot of you know, what we see is uh, some might call cosmetic uh, uh, efforts to you know, use the language of the West, so to speak, and saying some of the right things, even doing some of the right things. But ultimately, are there more meaning reforms, meaningful reforms underneath that? I mean, we have seen some uh, more space, certainly, uh, created in many of these countries. Uh, and if you could hit on that, but also, uh, as you well know, Yusuf engages uh, with many of these governments at these uh, events and conferences and through uh, various visits uh, and through some of these centers that promote religious tolerance and peaceful coexistence. But if you could highlight on some of the reform efforts that have gone in 10, and that would be very helpful. Sure. So yeah, so USERF does participate in a lot of these engagements. And many of the organizations that I've mentioned do really meaningful work on promoting religious tolerance. USERF has 
participated in some of these international conferences. We've issued statements of support for international agreements like the Marrakesh Declaration. And I think we're generally in favor of governments making public commitments to uphold religious tolerance. It's really helpful for the United States that they do. These are public commitments to uphold certain standards. It is also true that there have been structural changes. So Bahrain, which I just mentioned, has also made meaningful reforms with regards to the observance of Ashura and the treatment of prisoners. It's established governmental organizations that help look into some of these questions when they arise. Um, so this isn't a one-sided one-sided story. And there are meaningful structural changes that happen in addition to the religious tolerance rhetoric. So the key is not that religious tolerance work is unnecessary, but rather that it's insufficient. And ultimately promoting religious tolerance is a stepping stone toward a world where governments ensure that their citizens have freedom of religion or belief. So it's good that Middle Eastern governments promote tolerance, but the point of U.S policy should be to build off of these successes rather than seeing them as the end in and of itself. Yeah, that's an important point, just because, you know, common sense tell you that tolerance is more about, you know, putting up with people around you, whereas freedom of religion or belief ultimately is saying, you know, we should be engaging in a way that's allowing for full freedoms and respecting uh, others and actually even celebrating others uh, activities as uh, common citizens in a society. So, it's certainly just by you know the, the the street smart. I think you could say, hey, there's a limitation on on religious tolerance. But when you're talking about full freedom, the ability to publicly and privately worship, and and uh, much more than that, but to do a whole slew of things that the international standards are, uh, lay out is another level. And there's certainly been a significant activity in emphasizing religious tolerance. You know, following the signing uh, last year of the Abraham Accords, a political agreement between the state of Israel and at the time UAE and then other countries have joined on. Um, but how can the United States most effectively promote religious freedom within that framework in the years that if it's possible at all? So the Abraham Accords allude at kind of a general level to religious freedom. They talk about human dignity and freedom, including religious freedom. Largely, the Abraham Accords are a political agreement whose terms fall outside of USERF's mandate to focus on religious freedom specifically. That being said, we have seen renewed commitments to religious tolerance by parties to the Abraham Accords and structural changes like the creation, for example, of the Association of Gulf Jewish Communities, which unites different Jewish communities in the Arabian Peninsula states and promotes, I think, a greater awareness of the history and the heritage of those communities. So again, these steps are welcome. They're good. Um, and they're positive, but they don't necessarily address the longstanding concerns that USERF and other bodies that monitor religious freedom has raised. As we know, bilateral relationships are multifaceted and complicated, and as such, it's important that the U.S. commend states engaged in regional work towards greater religious tolerance. At the same time, we also have to be unflinching in calling out areas where states are falling short at providing freedom of religion or belief. The United States should see these religious tolerance and initiatives as positive and as a useful stepping stone towards a greater end of ensuring that people of all faiths and backgrounds, and that includes non-theists and non-believers, by the way, um, th those people have their right to religious freedom respected as afforded under international law. So greater societal tolerance is good, but ultimately that needs to be in the service of the government upholding its obligations under international law to ensure that the individual right to freedom of religion or belief is respected within the state.
Well, we'll have to leave it right here on this uh, United Nations International Day for Tolerance, November 16th. I want to thank uh, Scott Weiner, our uh, supervisory policy analyst, for, for going deeper today and, and pulling out some of these uh, aspects of the tolerance versus uh, religious freedom uh, in the Middle East and North Africa region. You can find more detailed information on several countries in the region that we report on and policy recommendations we make on our website. Thanks for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.